Good evening. This is Cinema 60. should have known better. No. no. Yes. I asked no man to do anything for me except to give me my uncle life in my own way. I don't feel bad because of me. Mm -mm. Because of you, baby. <laughs> A waste. Another turd sliding down the drain. All right, welcome to Cinema 60, the one and only podcast where uh, we throw in our two cents on what was hep. Over 60 years ago, Daddy-o. <laughs> Bart, how you doing? <laughs> Pretty good. How are you doing, uh, Daddy-o? <laughs> <laughs> you tried. Uh, we have a special show tonight, which is why we're no longer going to speak uh, in, in jazz talk. Well, we have a professional jazz talker with us tonight. <laughs> yeah. That's right, baby. Yeah, baby Jake. Yeah, we have Kyle Eagle, the Kyle Eagle from the Major Scale. Hi, Kyle. Hi, Kyle. Hello, how are you? Thank you for having me on here. Yeah, so so for those who do not know, the Major Scale is an, a jazz podcast and radio show, which you can find online at pftmedia.com. And yeah, Kyle has this great show that's basically comparing what is jazz past, present, future, and everything in between, right? Unknowns with... The classics and also stuff that uh, you could put in between it, like neo-soul stuff or like uh, elect electronic music, uh, hip-hop, you know, jazz that covers hip-hop. Well, you know, I'm partial to your show because I do the graphics for it. <laughs> <laughs> good graphics they are. Yeah, it's like you and like uh, Reed Miles and uh, Bob Cato from Columbia Records and then Jenna Ipcar is the, the great album cover graphic designers. Right, of course. Yeah. We all know that to be true. Peter Saville, Factory Records, shouldn't leave that one out. Definitely. <laughs> and then shout out to also, I guess, your partner, uh, Chris. Chris Barani, who we both put the show together. Yeah, Yeah, it is a great show. I mean, it's and it's a good show, too, I would say, as, as somebody who is, has learned jazz primarily through speaking to you. <laughs> I don't know too much about jazz myself. I'm, I'm not a total ignoramus. I've watched Ken Burns' jazz series you know, 10 or 12 times while working. In the in the video store, so I know I know the major figures and their major hit. I can't give any deep insights, but I know who you're talking about pretty much most of the time. And Charlie Parker, we're going to be talking about a bit uh, tonight. I know who that is. I actually don't know that much about Charlie Parker. I I know who he is, and I and I know I, I would say I know like the basic basics about him, but I don't know if if Kyle, if you want to drop some knowledge on us real quick, just so that we have uh. I don't know, a prelude into uh, before we start talking about the movie that we're actually here to talk about, which is uh, your ear pick of the 60s, like previous guest episodes that we've had. But yeah, Kyle, you want to tell us about Charlie Parker a little bit? Well, Charlie Parker, which the character is loosely based on uh, amongst the amalgamation of other uh, uh, composers and artists. But uh, Charlie Parker was the f one of, or not the founding father of bebop. He's from Kansas City, which had a long musical tradition of, of some of the greats that came out of there in the soul big band jazz thing and uh, along with uh, a lot of the players in the midwest 
Miles Davis being one of them, Clark Terry being another. And he, well, I could say, could be like an American Mozart. He was really brilliant, way ahead of his time, very much a prodigy, keen intellectual, a very funny person, but uh, a lot of conflict. I would say very, rather depressive, and he had a problem with drugs, uh, big time. And that kind of curtailed his life early on, and it ended his life early, earlier than it probably should have. But his innovations, the way he dressed, along with Dizzy Gillespie, ignited the modern music movement that I think kind of really kind of begat modern jazz, spilled over into youth culture, rock and roll, the blues, uh, to what we, I think, what we have now. What was like the, the state of jazz in the 60s here? Uh, it was a peak, but also it became a downturn because it was uh, overshadowed by rock and roll at this point. At this point, if you're still not Tony Parker, he's gone at this point. He died in the mid-50s. But jazz was going through, that's actually my favorite period because it's at its most, I think, perfectly well-formed in a place where it went into many directions. Uh, you had the avant-garde, you had a lot of black power, civil rights into it at this point. You had a lot of stuff that was uh, heavily, heavily influenced by African music, Latin music. You start seeing players from all over the world making names for themselves, like Japan, like Sadeo Watanabe. You start seeing people like uh, uh, Dollar Brand out of South Africa, Humesa Kela out of South Africa, really making waves. And it was a like like much of the '60s, it was just a creative explosion of stuff. A lot of landmark classics were done in that period of time in the 60s. I think on the first episode we ever did, I had a theory about how uh, jazz became more, uh, became headier and more intellectual during this period because I think that the kids were starting to listen to rock and roll and it became more like a, you know, a thing for, for you know, collectors and, and obsessives and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. And that's part of what led to, you know, all this uh, experimentation and splintering off in different directions. Am I just full of it, or is there is there some truth to that? No. In fact, a lot of those those artists were jazz heads. The Animals. I mean, that's their first line. Eric Burden always says is, uh, someone asked in the, a classroom, hey, anybody like jazz? And it was Eric Burden rose his hand up, and the guy asked the question was John Steele, which became the drummer. Uh, the Birds. I mean, Roger McGuinn is notoriously a jazz head. The only reason he didn't go to more of a jazz rock direction was because of Graham Parsons. But Eight Miles High is basically a, their dedication to the kind of uh, Eastern rhythm sounds of John Coltrane, Eric Dolphy. Uh, Chico Hamilton was the basis for Charlie Watts. His style of playing, especially an album like Satanic Majesties, which really sounded a lot like the kind of records Chico Hamilton was making at that time. Just sounds the overt psychedelia. Uh, Beatles definitely were drawing upon, really in Paul. Paul was the one that was, really absorbed a lot of different kind of musics. All the Motown guys, all the Stax guys, all were coming from that, that, er that territory. Atlantic Records was notoriously staffed with jazz guys. Dwayne Ullman, one, could hold his own with any Charlie Christian or any Carlos Santana, without a doubt. But you have guys like Herbert Laws, Ron Carter. Uh, Alice Coltrane pops up on a lot of soul and pop records from Atlantic mm -hmm. at that time. Namely, the Rascals. They always had like top flight cats playing on those, on those albums. The Beach Boys, uh, Charles Lloyd at one point started playing with him and they with, with him. So really a lot of crossover, but the, a lot of the 60s counterculture was predated by at least a decade, sometimes more, by jazz musicians. Their lifestyle, the way they thought, the whole civil rights movement as well. You know, Sonny Rollins was rock rocking a mohawk and a dashiki in like 1960. You know, uh, the guy that wrote Nature Boy 
was a long-haired hippie back in the late 40s. Nat King Cole, that's one of his big standards, but he made that song famous. But a lot of these guys were, you know, for every Abby Hoffman, there was someone like Charles Mingus or Gigi Grice way before them that were outspoken. Max Roach and Abby Lincoln, Nina Simone, they were the originals. Rock kind of followed it. Not saying it wasn't genuine, but I would say a lot of the heady counterculture stuff that became the norm in the like 60s rock, like Cream or Crosby, Stills and Nash and Joni Mitchell, jazz predated. And, you know, Joni Mitchell famously wrote a record for Charles Mingus, or he vice versa. Yeah, I was I was thought of the, the beat poets. Beatniks is kind of the, the bridge between, uh, you know, the, the jazz hipsters and, uh, and hippie culture. Yeah. It seemed like they... Uh, you know, a lot of those guys, the, the Kerouacs and, and the people who, uh, who, who followed him are, were all kind of speaking in that uh, hip jazz speak. and uh, Yeah, especially the comedians like Lenny Bruce, Mort Saul. What's his face from the Steve Allen roster? Uh, Louis Nye. Louis Nye was kind of a hipster guy, but like genuine. He looked sharp. Like the early Second City guys. They looked like college professors, but they were like into some really wild stuff. You know, like, uh, yeah. Well, this seems like a good time as any to, to get right into the your pick here because it's actually almost even a perfect lead-in to uh, Sweet Love Bitter from 1967. <laughs> is directed by Herbert Danska. Who never did anything else, I don't think, right? I think he did some documentary about, uh, kind of about beatnik poetry that was sort of like a pre-hip-hop kind of thing. But I don't, I haven't seen it. So I don't really know much about uh, his other work. And certainly this is a very low-budget movie. Yeah. So it's not really surprising that he didn't get much else. But yeah, I mean, this was, this is an interesting, strange little film. It's based on a, a novel by John A. Williams called Night Song. It's based essentially on Charlie Parker, as we were talking about. Loosely, I guess, based on his life. Once, instead of bird, we've got eagle. Yeah, which is interesting because that's my uh, last name. Yeah, exactly. Richard that... Evil Stokes. And that's the reason that you chose this movie, right? Be honest. Yeah. Well, it's also an allusion to Coleman Hawkins, who we went by the Hawk. You got uh, Charlie Yardbird Parker, those kind of names. So in this movie, we have Richie Eagle Stokes, who is a drug-addled but brilliant saxophone player. But the story is really told through this character, David Hillary, who is played by Don Murray. Oh, and by the way, Dick Gregory is Richie Stokes, yeah, which is Dick Gregory. Yeah, com- famous comedian. As you And I'm sure you know him. You must know him. Or you need to know him. At, at, by this time in, in the 60s, he was a very well-known comedian. I never would have recognized him because I picture him as this old guy with a big white beard. But he, <laughs> he doesn't. Yeah, you know what? I think that's right before he started. Uh, I think he was a lifelong vegan or vegetarian at, the, at some point. But he quit smoking after this movie. And that's when you see the gaunt. Because he looks filled out. Because mm-hmm. he was always so bone thin from like the 70s to the time he died. That long beard, really, really thin, uh, health conscious, you know. Uh, but at this point, I think he was still uh, eating meat, drinking, and smoking. Yeah. I don't think he ever had a problem with drugs, but. His appearances 
it's strikingly different from what before how we came to know him. He actually, I was reading about him. He, he actually did a lot of anti-drug activism. So I w- was wondering if this movie kind of tied into that. He he maybe wanted to do this movie because it condemns drug use. Yeah. I read actually that he did this movie as a slightly as a distraction from the death of Malcolm X. Malcolm X, yeah, but the anti-drug thing definitely ties into this but so does uh, political activism that he was involved in because this movie essentially it follows uh this david hillary who is a down on his luck white professor his wife got killed in a car accident and he is in the gutter when we meet him uh which is where he meets old richie eagle they essentially you know richie kind of pulls him up and and gets him a, a job in his friend keel's restaurant and uh, Keel is played by uh, Robert Hooks. He's a black restaurant owner, and he is a little bit wary about giving this white guy a, a job, but um, Richie kind of vouches for him. And yeah, and so the, the whole film just kind of follows several stories. It, it follows where Richie is going in his contradiction of this being a genius jazz player and, you know, being a drug addict, which is unfortunately a theme that comes up over and over again. And then uh, you have... Keel is dealing with being a black man who's dating a white woman who's played uh, Della, played by Diane Varsi. And then you have the story about David who is trying to get up out of the gutter and, and find his footing again after the death of his wife. So why did you choose this, Kyle? What, what did you like about this film? I saw it years ago, and the soundtrack was on Impulse Records. And that was one of the first labels I started buying jazz as a kid. But been into as a teenager. And I knew Dick Gregg, the comedian, and the score was by Mel Waldron, a great composer. And George Coleman plays the saxophone parts that Dick Gregory basically lip syncs to or plays to. And uh, incidentally, they're still alive. So is Don Murray and so is Robert Hooks still alive. Uh, which I'm, I'm thinking maybe this could be a good piece to do for the major scale on this movie. <laughs> um, but you're right, the director didn't do much. But the, one thing with the film, I, I first remember I saw it was like TCM back in the 90s. And I was surprised at how low budget it was. It reminded, it, the quality of it is kind of reminiscent of early Casavetta-style films. Mm-hmm. And the acting is too. It's a little bit more polished, I would say, than the improvisational way that, that uh, Casavetta would get. And I would say it's between like the Casavetta-style and like Putney Swope, Robert Downey Sr. But the story I found really engaging on, on a lot of levels. And also the cast, like, like you were saying, Dick Gregory was in it. Diane Varsi, who's a really interesting person, I would say that whenever someone said that James Dean was a rebel or represented it, it wasn't. It was Diane Varsi. And it actually cost her a career. Really interesting person. Really? Yeah. yeah she, she had a breakdown and left Hollywood. She was an unknown cast in Peyton Place. And, uh, you know, she had a role or two after that. Like, she was a real up-and-comer. And then she just sort of had a, a breakdown and said she couldn't handle Hollywood anymore and, and, and dropped out. But, yeah, there are people that said that that breakdown may not have happened. That she may have just been, you know, hey, look, I don't really want to go meet Clark Gable. I'd rather go meet, uh, what was a famous line? I'd rather meet, uh, not Clark Gable. I'd rather meet, uh, uh, like, Albert Einstein, let's just say. Like, someone like that. She wasn't caught up in the, in the glamour and glitz. And I think to a lot of... Uh, the man's world of, of Hollywood, I think that was, her, oh, she's just crazy. She's just a <laughs> nutcase. I believe it. I don't know. Because she didn't seem to exhibit it. She just, uh, she was kind of a loner. She was grow, grew up a loner, and she was just kind of a loner. And I, but if James Dean acted that way, like, man, I don't want to do this Hollywood crap. I'm out of here, baby. <laughs> that would probably have been the biggest part of his career. But she was a woman. But, you know, I mean, she didn't wear makeup for photo shoots. She didn't do Hollywood parties. 
she didn't dress up for Hollywood parties. And I think the studio's like, oh, you got a, you know, do you have a boyfriend? If not, we'll get you one. No, I don't have a boyfriend. Let's go. I'm wearing this. This is why I'm going. This is me. Oh, so she she was difficult. <laughs> yeah. I mean, but not. I right. think that, you know, people like Lily Taylor, I think people like, uh, you know, how Salma Hayek, you know, she doesn't dye her hair anymore. She, uh, proclaims to be growing old gracefully like Ally McGraw. I think she led the way for that, but she's an, but she's a excellent in this movie, like everyone. She's really, really, really mesmerizing to watch, in my opinion. But anyway, so I, the movie I chose, you brought this up, it's a great 60s flick, and it has a lot of issues in it, talking about race, creative expression, kind of where we were back then, and kind of where we are now, in a lot of ways. Like how some things, so we've made tremendous progress socially and politically, but yet, yet we kind of dial the clock back on some things, but... Yeah, I was surprised at how how relevant. I mean, this still is, unfortunately, <laughs> especially in its its themes about race. And and it's interesting. This movie is is sort of told from this white perspective of this character David, which at first I thought was kind of lame. But by the end of it, I actually ended up. Uh, I mean, it didn't need to happen this way, but I appreciated that having that contrast because it really works to very transparently highlight the contrast between those two main characters and, and showing just how based on race alone these two guys who are seemingly on the same path and seemingly on a level playing field you know you find them both in the gutter is the first scene and yet they're actually you, as the movie goes on and as things change and as eagle strives for something better and, and hits a glass ceiling and then just tumbles back down into the bottle and into drugs and into whatever else he can get into because he doesn't have anywhere to go or meanwhile david only has to go up from there and can go higher and higher and suddenly you know yeah, he can he can fail upwards exactly he's the guy he's only the drunk in the street because he chooses to be the drunk in the street which is a, a major theme in that film and then yeah and then you realize oh these guys aren't even on the same plane of existence it was way more interesting and a little more complex and, and thoughtful than I expected from a movie that is otherwise, I mean, it's just, it's very low budget looking. And, and as, as Bart already said, you know, it's like the acting is fairly wooden and it's not exactly like, it's not a movie I'd be like, go run out and see. But at the same time, I found it really compelling and really interesting because of those themes and because of how it treats certain things. And, and also because of, uh, I thought Dick Gregory did a great job in this. Yeah, I don't think you could make a, a big budget picture like that back then uh, with that kind of storyline. They wouldn't do it. We watched you it. Can... A Man Called Adam was basically the story, but sort of the, yeah. the slick Hollywood version of it with uh, Sammy Davis Jr., takes a lot of the same plot points but but handles them in a completely different way. This is so much grittier, so much when when they're in the gutter, they're in the gutter. This is it's really pretty uncomfortable to watch how far into the depths these guys go. You know, one thing with that movie, at first I think people can see you, you think, "Okay, this is kind of dated." But I don't think it is. I think it's it's definitely captures a time and place like you and and also the themes are universal. But I think one of the main things on it is the way Dick Gregory speaks and having known a lot of jazz musicians, some of the greats were still up. They talk like that. I mean, straight up, they talk just like that. Uh, there's not a lot of affectation in it. And uh, that both care. What's interesting about it is in that movie that not everyone ignored the great American art form of jazz. And it's like, you know, Don Murray's character obviously is really into it. Recognize him off the bat, but there are more movies like that made in Europe, with an American jazz guy or someone playing one, that there are American films. That's the thing about this film, it's American. These kind of films are made overseas quite a bit. And it happened 
or every decade of the few films made like that. Round Midnight's like that. Uh, you could even say uh, Storm of Three Day Past is kind of like that. There's an Eric Dolphy documentary where it's kind of like the wide-eyed, but wise and hip, woke, white European person gets the American jazz artist for, for the brilliance that he is. And that's why I like the fact that this movie, it's made in America. And then Don Murray is a guy who gets the music and likes the music. But there's so much stuff in their conversation. Like, okay, I love the way that it opens up when he's dead and he goes backwards. And how they met and everything. And I love that bit. And there was a guy I worked for for years. And I can relate to the Don Murray character because when I meet these guys, I'm not going to say I'm enamored with them, but I do think of them as like Obi-Wan Kenobi. You know, here's, here's someone who's a part of the great American art form. I've met Sonny Rollins. You know, I've met Pharaoh Saunders and Herbie Hancock. That's not like meeting some garden variety actor or whatever. Those to me are people who are like, wow, man, these guys put us on the map. And I like that bit about him. But unfortunately, like they say, don't meet your heroes. And Don Murray's character probably came to regret meeting Eagle in the movie. Because he's kind of a jerk. He's not really sympathetic. But he's not a bad guy. But he's not a good guy. And the drugs certainly help keep him kind of not so good. And that's what I've experienced working with some artists. Not all of them, but there are some that are like, oh, so this is what the this is what Chet Baker was like. This is what Charlie Parker was like. And then kind of the the BS he pulls on people to get in and buy him drinks, you know, playing on his celebrity, playing on the fact that they're they're enamored with him to kind of to manipulate them. That that part was just like, wow, they really nailed this perfectly. Either Dick Gregory was basing on people he knew, or whoever wrote that was really involved and really know the the kind of the the druggier side of of the of the artist's life you know well one thing i think is kind of interesting about this movie you're talking about this being an american production which it is rare besides a man called adam which which we watched in a previous episode of cinema 60 check it out there isn't terribly much especially dealing with stuff this this honestly and funny enough when this movie was coming out the executive producers essentially gutted it Apparently, according to the director, there was a longer director cut of this movie with footage of a character as a Miles Davis type who was completely cut, like 20-something minutes was cut from this film where they streamlined it and they changed the title to It Won't Rub Off, Baby. And they released it in in grindhouse theaters and drive-ins. And according to Danska, like that cut just doesn't exist anymore. And this was from a, a interview I found from the 90s. So I... We haven't found it so far. <laughs> uh, that'd be interesting if it was out there. Is the director still alive? I don't know. There's not much information on him that I that I found. But the other thing I wanted to say is I think it's interesting to talk about who you think is sympathetic. Because personally, I found Richie Stokes to be way more sympathetic than the David Hillary character, than the Don Murray character. I there's a So I think like one of the main themes, right? The main theme of this film is about just how well-meaning are your white friends. <laughs> Like, just how friendly are they and how much do they actually understand what you're going through? And there's a big dig at white intellectuals in the in the middle of this, well, which... I is... can see that. You got to understand, too, this is back in the 60s. You know, Dick Gregory, very realistically back then, could not go to certain parts of America and do his act. Like, right. someone could go spit in his face and call him boy, and there's nothing he could have done about it. So you, you got to remember that a lot of... Okay, this is why a lot of these guys became drug addicts. And it's because of the, the, the depression, and it's, which I think is interesting between uh, Stokes's friend, the restaurant owner, Keel, and his white girlfriend, which I think he's the most sympathetic character. Right. Because he's the one who's trying to keep order in this universe, to a degree. 
But he's proud of his jazz musician friend because that's our music, jazz. You know, we may have to fight for what we get in this world, but man, we are great people and we're great artists. They already know that. Because unfortunately, the outside world this time didn't see it because of the color of their skin. Just like women. And this is interesting because you see this a lot in the 60s where uh, intellectual white women and intellectual African Americans got together because they came from a common ground. You know, if a woman was like, oh, I love astrophysics. Oh, that's cute. Where'd you learn that? I read it in a book. You know, you know you're smart, but you got to deal with people's outside perceptions that girls are meant to be, be cute and pretty. Or that black men can only work on fields and are good at singing and dancing. Where it's like, no, it's not true. How you know? Well, first off, I like science. Let's just say, but you know, they had to constantly prove it. Dexter Gordon made a great remark. A black man has to do ten times better than any white man to be taken seriously in this country. And that's kind of the motivation you can yeah, see. Yeah, that's, that's this whole movie. Like that, that, yeah. And that's the most interesting part of this film. Although I'll just say that I really, there's a great scene where Richie is getting his white friend, kind of getting him back on his feet. They've gotten him that job. And he gets an interview at a university to be a, a professor. And you know it's a jazz movie because there's a shopping montage in the middle of this. Well, he makes him look sharp, doesn't he? <laughs> he does make him look sharp. Yeah, and he, um, sharp. he brings him to their, they're, they're kind of joking about what it'll be like to, to bring uh, Richie into this interview to to talk and there's all of these white intellectuals you know like really cliche looking people and they're they're sitting there asking him about um you know how would you compare yourself to Stravinsky and they're like and how do you feel about the cool movement and all of this stuff and and, and he doesn't give a shit cuts to all of them he like passes out a joint and they're all just high on the floor like just laying <laughs> and then they it like kind of cuts back that this was a fantasy and they're both kind of laughing in the in the shop there are a lot of those dream sequences in this movie and i had a, a little bit of trouble with them because the, the rest of the movie is so like gritty and and uh, really getting into the harshness of, of this living on on the edge like these guys are and then there it just breaks into these dream sequences that are kind of goofy and I thought it was something that pretty was pretty interesting about the movie but it, it doesn't surprise me that this movie was kind of cut up by the producers because it, it feels that way like it feels like it has a little bit of an identity crisis and like some of the secondary characters are dropped like Keel and his girlfriend it definitely wanted to do more with those two characters but we just don't see enough for them to be all that interesting and it sort of explains how many different tones this movie has, I think. What, did you like this movie? Yeah, in a way I did, but I think that was part of the problem for me. It's more about the sensations. Like, I, I think it captures even just drunkenness, just uh, David's, his first night at Keel's restaurant, he, he gets drunk and has to go and do the dishes. And just the way the camera sort of focuses on these, like, pile of, dishes and then he kind of loses itself and he can he sort of manages to refocus on another pile of dishes and it just I'd never seen like being totally wasted captured that accurately before and there are other moments like that in there where where Eagle is really messed up and it's he sort of hears that a character is coming into the room and then all of a sudden that character is right there in front of him and it really just it, it, it captures those sensations really well but then you know, some of the storytelling and character development just feel like they meant to have a lot more and just it got cut out by the by the producers, maybe. Yeah, it does feel disjointed, that's for sure. It'd be an interesting film to redo again, to update, maybe, or keep in the same time period. But I don't know, because, like, they captured lightning in a bottle, though. And, you know, because, like, going back to, like I was saying, like, Gregory's performance and Don Murray's, one thing I think you could put that you could book in this movie is one of those kind of existential, like, 
life's little crises you go through, this midlife, you know, uh, periods like Lost in Translation, Last Tango in Paris. You can kind of put that kind of that feeling of like self-sabotaging or at a low point in one's life and kind of on an existential search of where, where you're going. And both of those characters, actually all the characters in a search for something. The only one really has anywhere you can really go is failing upwards is Don Murray's character, you know, because he was a college professor. You can always fall back on that. Don Murray's character, so he really pissed me off and, and totally lost me because I thought he was just such a loser. Like, in comparison, I mean, I understand that Dick Gregory is playing a, a drug addict and a, and a user, and he's not very friendly. He, he does nice things for people. He's certainly very nice to to Don Murray, but he got his issues. But then Don Murray just, he just sucked. And like, here's this dude who's just such a mediocre white man in comparison to this jazz genius who, granted, you don't get very much about him. You just have to sort of accept that he is a jazz genius. I mean, the music's good. As, as you mentioned, the music in the movie's good. But in the major turning point in this movie and the, the climax of the film is the scene where Dick Gregory's waiting outside for Murray and a cop walks up to him, of course, and uh, he actually like throws a bunch of joints behind his back into the trash, knowing that this cop's going to come and mess with him. And the cop basically just comes over and even though he has nothing on him, just starts to beat the shit out of him. And Don Murray sees this happening. He happens to just have exited his job interview and he sees this happening and he just stands there and he freezes and he just watches it happen because he knows, well, if I get involved, it's going to look bad that I'm involved with this guy uh, and I don't want to lose a job I just got, essentially. And that's, it's this, that's the part's heartbreaking, that part of the movie. Yeah, it's this major betrayal, which, of course, then leads to Dick Gregory's character having a, a mental breakdown, which I thought was really well done, actually. I thought the whole ending of this movie was super strong. But um, I just found him, I don't know, I found that character to, to kind of suck. And I thought that, that the whole critique within this movie about this sort of idea of, of white intellectuals, and I certainly understand the irony of, of the three of us right now discussing this movie. You know, like we're certainly, there's only so much that we can we can even add to the discussion anyhow, too. Because well, I think it's, it's good to know this stuff. I mean, it, it doesn't come out of a vacuum. For sure. You know, and that's the, that's one of the things that at the beginning of the film, Don Murray's character does seem like, oh, He's cool. He, he, he gets me as an artist. He gets me as a person. And that does exist then. And it exists now, quite hopefully more so now we can look back and kind of see this stuff. The, the beating scene, which I had to, I've actually had to skip over that. Not that it's graphic, but it's, it's based on a couple of things. Charlie Parker got arrested and he was wearing only house slippers. I think he's wearing shorts. And he was in bad shape. And he looked in bad shape. And the, the cops photographed him. Miles Davis was outside of a club smoking a cigarette that he played at. And the cops had no lawyer. He said, oh, I'm, I'm on my break. They go back in. And they hit him. I mean, they split his head open. There's a famous picture of him, blood all over his shirt. And he's playing in that club. Cop didn't care, didn't know. You know, he could have ended his life right then and there. Probably the cop would have walked away scot-free. Like I said, it's an amalgamation of a few, several different real-life things or real-life stories. And that was one that I thought was really jarring. The fact that, yeah, Don Murray's character... Who benefits so much from Eagle in a lot of ways. Yeah, you he's know, a mooch. Yeah, that's what sucks. In, 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 in a lot of ways, how people look at, at Eagle's being a mooch. Well, they're both kind of parasites on uh, on uh, Keel. Like, Keel is holding them both up. Like, they right. both are just kind of doing whatever the hell they want because they know they, there's this this guy, Keel, who ex-minister, uh, this good guy, who if I overdose, uh, Keel will come along and throw me in the bathtub with some ice cubes and I'll be fine. No big deal. They both sort of, both both David and Eagle, take advantage of, of their friend and behave however the hell they want. 
because they both kind of got death wishes. They don't want to be in this world, part of this world anymore. So they just, you know, abuse themselves and abuse drugs and, and alcohol. And uh, I, I really like the idea behind the movie, like comparing these two characters, the David and Eagle, and how, as you were saying, they start in the same place and they're really kind of mirror images of each other. But just based on race alone, there's their ability to recover from this pit that they've found themselves in is, is uh, completely different. I mean, I actually would like to read the novel. I bet it's worthwhile. One thing about this film is the, the friendship. I don't know if you've ever had drinking buddy or like to drink, but it, it definitely, it's one of those relationships that people get into when they're in the, oh, you're a drunk, so am I, let's hang out, you know, like. One of those kind of things. Almost like extreme circumstances made them friends. Those kind of friendships were like drinking buddies or drug buddies. I've never had a drug problem. I do like to drink, but I have a few friends that like, I can't drink with them anymore because they definitely go off the one deep end. Or I don't go off the deep end with them because then they've had to stop. You know. Uh, but it is interesting how you cross paths with those kind of people. That's what I think makes a very existentialist side of this film is their friendship through their kind of like debauched behavior self-sabotaging self-destructive habits i also like how david is is portrayed as pretty colorblind like it doesn't seem to make any difference to him at all mm. that that eagle is black they treat each other as equals really and they have an interesting relationship you know it's almost like david doesn't even realize the the, the difference between them until this final scene of of betrayal see but that, that's the, that's what i really like because it's that that horse shit <laughs> <laughs> it's that that's like that's like a picture of white privilege to act like well i never noticed it doesn't matter and he gets called out on that actually by by della by diane varsi's character where there's a scene where she's talking about how her her relationship with keel is rough because keel is seemingly unable to actually we just had a whole tennessee williams episode so this is also an apt theme but he seems like he's impotent or he can't perform sexually with her because of the pressure of dating a white woman and she's also upset that their romance is overshadowed by this. And she's also then upset uh, on the other side of it by people that give her dirty looks and, and how people treat her. And there's this good scene where she is walking with Murray on the beach and sort of talking to him about, like, you don't even understand what, what this is like for me, let alone what it must be like for Keel. And then she ends up even, like, running away from him because she's like, you're only here because you think I'm easy. Like, screw you, you know? And, and he's sort of like, what? Like, he's just kind of a dunce about all of this. He's caught in his own bullshit, which is another thing. Like, like drunks and druggies, it does suck out the best parts of your character. Even parts that say, well, he was always rational and, and, and well-tempered before. Yeah, well, now that's before he starts drinking a bottle of scotch a day or chased with a heroin and cocaine or whatever because it does it does it does make you stupid a lot of times i mean like people act stupidly uh eagle acts stupidly in the movie you know charlie parker in real life did stupid shit sonny clark died in a, in a club and the, the club owners took his body i think threw it in an alley far enough away to where the cops and the law couldn't say oh he died in your bar or your establishment we gotta shut you down and take your cabaret cabaret license it definitely seems like going kind of along with that, but both characters definitely seem to wear the bruises and the scars and the wounds, the open wounds of continuous bad behavior. It's interesting. They, like this, the scenes where Eagle's being kind of manipulative. I, 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 I worked for a guy. I watched him do stuff like that. It was really frustrating, really taxing, you know, because you'd get a good thing going, then he'd open his mouth. 
or he'd start wanting to get more involved. You're like, God, the more you get involved, the more this is going to get. Or people who were enamored by him or had their rec- his records or really respected him within like a half an hour or a lifetime of, of being a fan of this person. You're like, wow, this guy sucks. I've seen that. You know, it's like, oh, man, this is, this is terrible. I love that scene where he asks for 20 bucks from the, the lady who clearly just wants to get in bed with him. I think that's right. a, a great, great scene, you know, a great example of uh, you know, him just being focused on, on getting messed up and not really caring about anything else and, and using his celebrity to, just to, you know. That's one of the most authentic parts of the movie is I've seen that. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, oh, man, this is painful to watch. Again, when I say they got lightning in a bottle with it, they, got, they cast it right. It's it's authentic. Although Dick Gregg was a comedian, he was definitely would, uh, from that late 50s kind of intellectual counterculture comedians that had uh, people like Nichols and May, Lenny Bruce, Godfrey Cambridge, uh, George Carlin. Like the real thinking man's observational. It, it was very commonplace back then to go to a place like The Hungry Eye or Mr. Kelly's or The Gate of Horn and you'd see, like, Giuseppe Latif, or the opening act would be Nichols and May, a comedian. Mm-hmm. And they had similar lifestyles back then. And they toured with each other. Smothers Brothers would open up for Charlie Parker. Uh, I don't know if that ever happened, but it would not be out of, out of the ordinary to see that. That's why I think that Dick Gregory, his performance was so spot on. And that they got Mal Waldron to do the score. I mean, you couldn't have picked a better... They could have gotten Elmer Bernstein. They could have gotten, like... Stu Phillips, Michelle Legrand, or Lalo Schifrin, any number of people who did great jazz records, Andre Previn, but they weren't Mal Waldron. Mal Waldron was a true blue bebop jazz musician, and the whole band were George Coleman. The great George Coleman is who Dick Gregory's playing to in that movie. And it's what makes it believable is that these guys play. Uh, Waldron did play with Bird, I'm pretty sure. George Coleman, I'm not sure. But Cole, Coleman was in Miles Davis's group, I think, at that point, on and off. But he had been in Miles Davis's group, along with Donald Bird and other people. But he was definitely like, there was no half stepping when they got the score. It almost, the score of actually, to me, is such a character itself. It almost makes me wonder what came first, the score of the movie. Or did Mal Waldron score it along with, you know, it's just, I thought, so fit so perfectly. Did Waldron do a lot of movie work, do you know? Uh, I don't, I don't, that I'm not sure. Mel Waldron actually did the score for The Cool World, which we talked about. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a handful Gillespie. of other, a handful of other movies. I thought that was a Dizzy Gillespie move, uh, score in The Cool World. No? Yeah, there's definitely a lot of Dizzy Gillespie in there, but I think the score, like the, you know, the... The composer. Yeah, it's a, yeah, Mel Waldron. All right, cool. But, uh, and you know, like those other movies I mentioned, like Lost in Translation and Last Tango in Paris, again... The scores to those films are almost an integral part and character of the, of the movie. Although, Lost in Translation is mostly, you know, hand-picked songs to move the drama along, but it's done well. This movie, actually, that reminded me, only because I, I just watched it really recently, was De Palma's Hi, Mom. There's a scene about the Be Black Baby play that they force all of these also white intellectuals to kind of walk through as a group of black people in whiteface terrorize <laughs> back of white people just telling them they're like you're gonna you're gonna learn the black experience and they just absolutely terrorize them and and then of course by the end it comes out with uh, all of them screaming and crying and thinking they're all going to to die or get murdered or raped or something horrific they all come out like 
wow, that was really powerful. I feel like I really understand something, you know, like I really, this was really interesting experience. And then all the, all the black people who were putting on the player, like, man, they didn't learn anything. <laughs> Don't you think it's kind of the same way? Who was that actor that did that video last year? That was real, uh, Donald Glover. Yeah. What's his, what's his, what's his childish Gambino. Yeah. I didn't really care for the song that much. It's one of those movies, it productions that has the same effect, you know. I, th- I think a lot of people come away like, yeah, you know what? These white people didn't learn anything about it. I, another thing about that film that I think resonates with me, Sweet Love Better, is I lived in uh, Newark for a while, straight up, not Williamsburg, you know, not you know. I lived in Newark, and it was not a great place to live by any means. But from day one, you see the whole like, oh wow. Okay, this is not America. This is a different world altogether. Well, it's, it's like it's, got, it's probably more America than most Americans now. <laughs> even hey, you know something? I still could, if I push came to shove, I could go, I could have gone back to Florida. Right. You know, I could have gone back to Florida to the relative safety of my where my mom lived at the time in St. Cloud. I you know family in the land. I could have suburbs crashed someone's couch in uh lower east side which was nothing like newark you know uh, gang neighborhood chop shop with behind my you know it was you, you didn't go out at night like you know didn't go walk to the store you know unless you were one to really attract attention to yourself you know every time i walked in the building people scrambled because I, I lived in a drug building that mostly was sold weed but still i don't know you're a cop every time but when you see that and you see that struggle the just flat out like you don't you're not part of mainstream America and we don't care. Think about Newark is also that's where Gracia Moncur the Third was from. Sarah Vaughn was from there. Wayne the Shorter Brothers, Wayne and Alan Shorter were from there. Hank Mobley, uh, all these great. Or Mary Baraka was still living there. These great, not just good artists, excellent, amazing people were from there. And, you know, when I got to know Gratian a lot and other jazz musicians and people like Chuck Stewart, the photographer, they're the ones that kind of clarify, like in this movie, the depression and the seeking solace in drugs and alcohol. Because when you do something well, you want that recognition. You want that uh, reward for it. But in America back then, Charlie Parker was considered a genius, but he, when he got the bandstand, he still had to live in pre-civil rights America, which means he couldn't use a bathroom in certain places, couldn't eat or stay. He was at the mercy of whatever white person or people would tolerate. And Europe's a different story for a lot of these guys. A lot, a lot of them stayed there and stayed in Europe. Which is funny because in the beginning of the movie, an, another scene that just really hits me is when they first meet. And he goes, I saw you play so-and-so in, in Europe. And he goes, yeah, man, we had some great shows there. And the way he kind of looks back on it with like this fond memory, dreamlike almost. And I, again, something I've experienced is when you hear some of these artists talk about, back then I recorded that series of albums in France, man, that's the best I've ever did. I, I, I was able to do whatever I wanted. I was able to be me. I was, you know, the people were accepting of the ideas we we're coming across or coming up with, you know. Yeah, I really flash forwarded to around midnight. It, it, at that scene, it really felt like, uh, you know, Run Midnight is almost the, the prequel to this movie. You sort of feel like that was, that must have been Eagle's experience in, in Paris. You know, oh, yeah. You know. Well, you know, and that starred Dexter Gordon. 
mm-hmm. the great Dexter Gordon as the main character in that uh, in that film, Brown Midnight. Who was a, who lived in uh, Europe for years, uh, Denmark particularly. The movie to me seems almost like a mix of Dexter Gordon and uh, Charlie Parker. But Dexter Gordon lived a longer, much longer life, much more successful life than uh, Charlie Parker did. But you know, like, like when I worked for a lot of these musicians, it was amazing to see. Like, go if I was involved with a show of theirs or just go see them play, I was I I was always amazed at how they had a hardcore group of fans that were always young foreigners, Asians and Europeans that knew their work up and down, and they would be like younger than I was. They'd be like you know, at the time of their twenties. Or they were students at NYU or Columbia or uh, the New School, and they'd hear some of these guys playing. They come see them in, in droves. And then the other side would be like kind of the group that was their contemporaries. You'd see Mary Barack at the shows, Bob Dylan's old girlfriend, um, Susie Rotolo, people like her, like that. That Joan Baez was at a, I saw at a show once. I think it was a Chico Hamilton show, but yeah, those types. It'd be this big mix, but it was interesting how there was like a generational divide sometimes. But uh, would you say this is a uh, one of the ultimate jazz films that sh- shows jazz? I don't think there's ever really been one, but it's come close. A lot of times, it comes off as caricature. I think the movie that uh, about Joe Albany. Oh yeah, another one you mean? Low Life. That's a that's pretty authentic. Uh, Round Midnight's pretty good. Uh, kind of Blue gets close, but it does it does veer the character at times. The guy who played Miles Davis was terrible, but the destructive nature of the tortured artist Ch- of Chet Baker, I think Ethan Hawke got pretty good. But yes, sir. There aren't a whole lot of jazz movies. There's Up All Night was it's not bad. Well, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because it's just it's either that we're not giving the right people the voice in order to tell these movies, these stories, or that it's just not a story that can be told in this way truthfully. You know, it's like, it's a feeling, you know what I mean? I think it's that. I think it's hard to get and nail it. I mean, like... Well, they're all downward spiral movies, it seems. Yeah, but, you know, you could could make the Herbie Hancock story it would come off. Because there's always going to be a point where you get, like, some, you got to get some dopes to play mildly. Hey, baby... I don't dig that, motherfucker. Yeah. He's like, oh, it's stupid. You know? <laughs> but I think sometimes, I'm not the sound, I mean, I like movies, but sometimes these theater geeks, they're that. They're geeks. They have a hard time really embracing, I think, sometimes a real artist, like a brooding real artist. Like, I think Anthony Hopkins did Picasso well because I think he gets it. He's a real artist. Someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman, I think he could nail something. There was talk of Crispin Glover playing Bill Evans, which I think will be brilliant. Especially if they really kind of let him get into that Bill Evans state of mind and express that stuff. Because that guy's another guy really tortured, but man, he made... Crispin Glover's dad is in this movie, Bruce Glover, in a small role. I said, hey, oh, that's that, right. that guy looks like Crispin Glover, and it was... Yeah, Bruce <laughs> Hellion Glover. Yeah. That's right. But I don't think you have to have always downward spiral movies. I don't think you have to do that. I think if you have, yeah, is there a positive jazz movie that's like not corny? That like, is there one about like the the triumph of jazz? Like, I'm trying to think. Besides, Space is the place, which is my favorite jazz movie. The the Glenn Miller story. Well, he disappears in an airplane. Yeah, yeah he disappears true. in World War Two. That's a pretty interesting. You know, one thing you could always do is the jazz mysteries because a lot of these guys did die 
like unsolved true crime, like what happened? No one knows and no one's going to talk. Why did Gigi Gratis disappear? He did. I mean, a big, well-known, established guy. Well, you produced a, a, a jazz mystery movie, right? We can plug that. Uh, this is Gary McFarland, a guy who became very well-known in his lifetime, obscure after death, but was, was poisoned in a bar. And uh, no one ever was taken to, to task for it. Dropped dead right there in the 55 bar. Still still uh, operating to this day. You know, still owned by the same kind of quote-unquote Cosa Nostra owners. You know, but uh, why did Wardell Gray, why was he found on the side of the road between Los Angeles and Las Vegas with his neck broken? You know, who, who did it? No one knows. But I don't know, but you, you could think about some of these stories like, like a young Herbie Hancock going to take, uh, as a child, taking instruction from Arnold Schoenberg. You're seeing these, these worlds collide. Or seeing someone like Stravinsky, he was very much loved jazz, and jazz came sprouted very much from like the Firebird Suite. And those would make great movie, if not just compilation scenes, or like a vignettes, without going to the spiraling of... A lot of documentaries that don't always go to the spiral, like the Billy Strayhorn documentary, you know, he wrote all those great, those great standards with Duke Ellington. One of the things I really liked about Sweet Love Bitter was the fact that it didn't focus too much on the actual music, because I do think one of the things I can't stand, and I can't stand this with artist movies, where there's always some scene where someone's painting really angrily or really passionately, oh, yeah. and you get that, like, the hand slapping across yeah. the canvas. And it's the same thing with music movies, where it's always, like, somebody, like, pouring sweat as they tickle those ivories or whatever. It's like this, like, always some corny-ass yeah. scene like that and and this movie i thought managed to get across the importance of music without having some dopey yeah. 10 minute long sax solo feeling the music kind of thing <laughs> like man called adam like that's that's it's right totally it does just that and that's one of the big differences between this movie and that like it, it plays up the the tortured artist as entertainment squeezing as much melodrama out of this story as you can in this slick hollywood production whereas this is like really down in the dirt and and uh, really showing you what it what it's like to to live the way these guys did. Yeah, because people like watching train wrecks. You know, another good documentary that's pretty good about the dramatic buildup is Eric Dolphy. He quits Mingus's band in '64 and stays in Europe. Pretty much from when he joined Chico Hamilton in '58 till he died in '64. This guy soared. I mean, he was landmark recording after landmark recording, playing with any and everybody from all different styles. And with conviction, and people respected it. But he was diabetic, and he goes to Europe to play, where he has some great success, and he has a lot of fanfare and respected. And he dies over there. But what people say and how he did it, he just kept playing and playing and playing, getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And he's just downing ice cream, anything sugary to get through this basically this onslaught of diabetic shock, which he dies from. And people thought he was oh, he's in the doped out jazz position. And what the real issue is, is like, you know, thinking back then is that these human beings, our fellow Americans, didn't really have the education for their own health care. These guys were brilliant, but they weren't like, oh, hey, by the way, if you ever have diabetic, don't go pound down the ice cream. Go get some insulin. And where did I get that from? The hospital. Oh, they don't want black in. Oh, so you had to learn things like probably, oh, just drink some orange juice and have some ice cream. That'll, that'll make you feel better. You know, down-home remedies to a real first-world problem. But the way that, that this basically is genius, Mozart-level genius, just burned out in Europe going through a diabetic shock is just such a dramatic story. I've read it. I've watched stuff, you know, Richard Davis talking about it, his, ex, his wife, his widow talking about it. 
oh my gosh, this is so crazy. This is a good documentary, but man, this would make a great dramatic film that would, like we were talking about, what could counter the the downward spiral kind of theme that runs through a lot of jazz films. Mm-hmm. So Sweet Love Bitter, I, it's, I, I thought this was a really interesting pick. This is definitely one of those movies that I'm surprised hasn't really gotten a resurgence. Trolling through Google a little bit, it's shown uh, occasionally in, in every like five years, seven years at some like semi-academic <laughs> or a semi-grindhouse kind of theater. And it's certainly, I mean, it has an interesting cast. It has an interesting story. If you can get past that sort of low-budgetness of it, I thought it was actually really compelling and really, really fascinating. And it certainly made me uh, interested in, in everything that inspired it. So thank you, Kyle. That was a good a good pick. Yeah, I'd never heard of it before. And I, I definitely know some people I'm going to tell about this thing. Well, thank you, guys. And I appreciate the opportunity to come out and talk about it. I, I, mean, I like all music, but jazz is particularly kind of a mission of mine. But, you know, the great American art form. They even say that in yeah. the movie, yep. straight up. Thank you. Yeah, so you can find Kyle at, at the major scale, right? You want to plug anything else, Kyle? Uh, got some episodes coming up. Midnight Hour, uh, which is Alicia Heed Muhammad, Tropical Quest, and Adrian Young, the composer. Both guys did Luke Cage soundtrack. Then coming up, David Liebman coming up. Uh, Abdullah Ibrahim coming up. Uh, the great Monty Alexander. And we're going to look into some stuff like uh, Jazz Jamaica, Jazz UK, and even we're going to talk to one of my favorite authors, Frederick Turner, about his book on Big Spiderbeck, going way back to the 20s. Uh, one of the original, talking about burning out, you know, he, uh, I think he died at 27, like, with Joplin Hendrix and uh, 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 Brian Jones, you know, Jim Morrison, like, you know, again, for every rock star, there's a jazz musician that predates him, you know. Kirk played, Kirk Douglas played him in a movie. Big Spider. Yeah, Man with a Horn. Yeah. Yeah, Man with a Horn, yeah. Yeah. That movie was inspiration to a lot of different players I've, I've met over the years. Like, oh, I saw the movies, man, I wanted to play a trumpet after that. You know, mm. I was surprised when I met Kirk Douglas, he didn't play the horn. You know, I go, oh, really? Like, oh, that's interesting that you think that. But anyway. Yeah, so pftmedia.com, right? And the major scale. It's on WCF, it's on WGOT. Uh, you can get it on iTunes, uh, Facebook, Stitcher. Twitcher, yeah, Snitcher, Ditcher, Spotify, you know, Rectify, you know, all right, Commodify. Anyway, no, yeah, it's on a lot of platforms. It's easy to find. It's really easy to find. Well, thank you, Kyle. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having. I I think you guys do great work. I love how you present films. Well, thanks. Thanks. And you're welcome. All right, play us out, Kyle. When the clock strikes, hey, after midnight, it's McDonald's. (laughs) Anyway, please edit that out. You've been listening to Cinema 60 with Bart DeLauro and Jenna Ipcar. The theme song is Io la conosceva bene by Piero Piccioni. The closing theme is Go Go Gorilla by The Ideals. Check out cinema60.com for new episodes and supplemental material. That's cinema-60.com. And follow the show on Twitter and Facebook at Cinema 60 Podcast. Thanks for tuning in.